and uh, we love him dearly. So today he's going to bring a message. I asked you to uh, listen because I know you will, uh, and I asked you to just think about the gift we have that is uh, Rob Shearer in this church. It's really tremendous. So Rob, take it away, brother. Okay, I'm mic'd up. Oh, I don't know whether to tell the Mark Twain joke or not. <laughs> a group of people invited Mark Twain to come and speak at an evening dinner engagement. And uh, he asked them, he says, how long do you want me to speak? And they said, mm, five or ten minutes. And he said, oh, I, you know, I'll need at least two or three weeks for prepare." He says, now, if you wanted me to speak for an hour, I could do that at the drop of a hat. So, some of you aren't laughing. You've heard me preach and teach before. My problem is I am a teacher. Um, I teach in an online high school. Uh, I have six classes, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. I teach at the Schaefer Study Center here all day. We have about uh, 30 teenagers who show up at 7 in the morning, and they're here till 5.30. And I teach. I teach all week long. And my classes are either 60 minutes or 90 minutes, so that's kind of the normal speaking time for me. Yeah, I won't do that to you, I promise. But I want to talk about the topic that when Larry asked me if I would uh, would bring the message this morning and said, have you got something? I said, well, God's kind of been laying this on my heart for a while now. Uh, it's the, the question that is now 40-plus years old from a very influential book and film series back in the 70s, How Should We Then Live? And it's become, I think, more and more relevant even as we move into the 21st century than it was when the books first came out um, back when I was a young man. How should we then live? The times are getting interesting, challenging, in some ways a little bit difficult. Um, Christianity is no longer uh, the dominant uh, influence in our culture. Christianity is, in fact, um, attacked, um, but more often just ignored and pushed to the side and counted as not relevant. And so I want to go back to um, this sort of influential um, book, film series that came out. Go ahead and do the next slide. It's been 44 years. One of the ways I can keep track of that is um, Cindy and I actually went to the premiere. Uh, The film series was a 10-part series, 10 half-hour episodes. And when they were finished, they were, were filmed during 1976. That's why the 44 years. And then they were premiered, released in 1977, Schaefer went on a tour of 18 cities around the United States. And uh, Cindy and I had the great good fortune. Uh, we were dating. It was about a month before we got engaged in March. Uh, and it made the, uh, the front page of the Atlanta Constitution. Schaefer packed out the, uh, the Civic Center with a, with a large crowd where he presented some of, an episode of the film series and then gave a talk and did Q&A. Um, it was uh, an extremely... Um, important development. Move on to the next slide, if you would. 
yeah, there's the facts on it. I won't bother to go through and read all of those. But I will point out the book, when it was released, sold 40,000 copies in the first three months. And it was a $20 hardback in the 1970s when that was really a substantial sum of money. It, it remains in print. It's still being sold. Um, it's still influential. In fact, it is one of the most influential books in the evangelical Christian world. Schaefer, as it turns out, was quite prophetic, ahead of his time in discerning a number of the cultural trends that were going on in the 60s and 70s. He'd been thinking about these things and writing about these things. Move on to the uh, to the next slide, if you would. The uh, the film series was prompted by two important influential series that were broadcast on PBS in the U.S. back when you know you could only get three channels plus the uh, public station. Um, they actually were done jointly by the BBC and PBS. The first was Civilization by Sir Kenneth Clark. Ten episodes, um, still worth watching, uh, and he gave a lot of credit to Christianity. He talked about the rise of civilization from the ancient world to the modern. But the end of that series has Sir Kenneth Clark basically saying that now we have reached the stage where we can move on beyond religion. BBC, PBS. Second series, four years later, The Ascent of Man by Jacob Bernowski also a joint BBC-PBS production, also multi-part, talking more about the rise of science, but also culture. Um, and it ended on a completely different note from Kenneth Clark's series. Bronowski ended with um, a sequence that he filmed at Auschwitz, and he talked about the horrors of the 20th century, and he sort of bemoaned the possibility that there might even be any further progress and whether we weren't actually heading in the wrong direction and that mankind was becoming more cruel, more corrupt, um, more tyrannical, and it left people pondering. So Schaefer saw both of those, and they, they both of those were tremendously influential, drew large, large audiences when they were broadcast in the U.K. and in the U.S., 1969 and 1973. So Schaefer and his son, Frankie, um, prompted by Frankie, really, and given some uh, some backing by Gospel Films and Billy Zoli, decided to film uh, a Christian worldview, a study of um, all the whole sweep of history from ancient to modern, but from the, the worldview of Christianity and with a biblical critique. So, William, if you would, go ahead and play that premiere. I, it, this, this will seem a little dated in production values, but I was watching it this past week, and I was kind of taken up short by the way in which this was presented. So go ahead. It's from 40 years ago.
flow to history and culture. This flow is rooted in what people think. And what they think will determine how they act. There is violence and a breakdown in society up to the point in which it's unsafe to walk through the streets in many of the cities of the world. On the other hand, there is a danger of an increasing authoritarianism to meet the threat of chaos in our own countries and internationally. Should we despair and give in? If not, how should we then live? That's the trailer from 40 years ago. I watched that and I was going, oh my gosh, those clips could have come from last week. Um, the French have an aphorism. The more things change, the more they stay the same. Go ahead and move to the next slide, if you would. Here are the episodes. The Roman Age, the Middle Ages, the Renaissance, the Reformation, the Revolutionary Age, the Scientific Age, the Age of Non-Reason, the Age of Fragmentation, the Age of Personal Peace and Affluence, and Final Choices. It's still worth watching. It's still worth reading. In fact, I'm, I'm not alone in this opinion. In fact, it was suggested to me from a number of the things that I've read recently. 200 years from now, I think there are only three Christian authors from the 20th century whose books will still be in print and who will still be read. C.S. Lewis, J.R.R. Tolkien, and Francis Schaeffer. I don't think anybody else is going to stand the test of time. But they already now... 40 and 50 years after their writings were published, they're still in print. They're still selling a huge number of copies every year. The critics hate them. The cultural elites hate them and dismiss them. But they still influence people. They are still read. They, what the truths that they teach are still applicable. Schaefer is uh, at the root of all that, and I will tell you, you, you may have heard the name. Some people think my last name is Schaefer. It's not. Um, I, Together with my um, darling bride, Miss Cindy, we're the co-directors of the Francis Schaefer Study Center, which is a ministry of Abundant Life Church. We teach high school students. Um, every year, we, we give them a course that sort of follows this pattern over the course of four years. And in fact, um, Karen and Kevin Brummett and Cindy and I and Duncan and Janine MacGyver met starting in January of about 2003, 2004. And we read How Should We Then Live Together and talked about what kind of a high school program should we be putting together to equip high school students to deal with the 21st century? So we don't give it to the kids to read, um, but it informs everything we do in terms of how we teach them and what we teach them. Go ahead and flip to the next slide. This one's kind of funny. If you've read Schaefer, you'll get this. If you haven't, it might be a little obscure. This is Francis Schaeffer arriving at the pearly gates and St. Peter is flipping through the book going, oh, yes, Schaeffer, Dr. Francis, I believe Thomas Aquinas would like to have a word with you, <laughs> which will probably surprise Schaeffer on a couple of 
levels because he's not sure Aquinas would be there. Um, Schaefer was extremely well read. He was not a professional historian. He was not even a professional theologian. He was an evangelist. But he was a student of the culture. Uh, he was a student of what was going on. Let me show you just a couple of quotes from the book. Go ahead and next slide. Most people catch their presuppositions from their family and surrounding society, the way that a child catches the measles. And I'm here to tell you right now, most of what you catch from the culture these days is just not only not very good, it's just flat out wrong, if not wicked and evil. Go to the next one. People with understanding realize that their presuppositions should be chosen after a careful consideration of which worldview is true. Next slide. Schaefer identified one of the problems with recent history. Going back to um, the Renaissance, through the Enlightenment, and into the modern times, that humanism, which elevated man and made man the central measure of all things. That's, in fact, the motto of um, some of the early Renaissance writers. Man is the measure of all things. He says, the ironic fact is that humanism, which began with man's being central, eventually had no real meaning for people. On the other hand, if one begins with the Bible's position that man is created by God and in the image of God, there is a basis for that person's dignity. Men have dignity and worth because they are created in the image of God. If you elevate man but cut him loose from every other source of meaning, eventually you wind up with no meaning. You wind up with relativism. Next slide. Here's a simple and profound truth. This is Schaefer, not me. If there are no absolutes by which to judge society, the society is absolute. Next slide. Society is left with one man or an elite filling the vacuum left by the loss of the Christian consensus which originally gave us form and freedom. There is no such thing as relativism. You can't live that way. That was one of Schaefer's central insights is people may profess that they don't believe in truth. They may profess that all truth is relative, but they can't live that way. And Del Tackett has probably what I think is the most powerful, effective, apologetic question in the history of the church, and that is when someone propounds to him that all truth is relative, just ask them, have you ever been lied to? Did anybody ever tell you something that you know wasn't true? See? You don't believe in relativism. You can't live that way. We judge when someone tells us something that is not true. We judge on the basis of truth. And we object. We are insulted. We are angry when someone tells us something that is not true. If we really believed in relativism, if we really believed there is no such thing as absolute truth... First of all, the concept of a lie wouldn't um, even compute. There can't be a lie. If all truth is relative, there, then there, there's no way to tell that anything is a lie. It could be true for them, but not true for me. But no, no, when somebody lies to us, we're like, that's not right. 
And Tackett, I think, is inspired by Schaefer in that. Next slide. As Schaefer predicted, we have arrived at the inevitable consequence of the now widely shared presupposition that there are no absolutes. Nobody can live that way, but the culture professes that this is true. The culture dismisses. It's a, it's a convenient way not to have to deal with truth. One of my favorite authors is R.C. Sproul. Sproul wrote a book, one of the first books he did, uh, also back in the 70s, called The Psychology of Atheism, in which he did a little uh, intellectual jujitsu move and uh, flipped Freud on his ear and left him laying on the carpet <laughs> and said, it's not faith in God that is a crutch for people who are unable to deal with reality. It's atheism that is a crutch for people who don't want to deal with a holy God in their own sinful nature. So if we're going to play um, the Bulvarian game, as Lewis calls it, Bulvarism, you only say that because... So instead of dealing with the issue, the point, the logic of your uh, statement, I'm going to explain your statement away by pointing out some psychological reason for you to have said it. If we're going to play that game, then there's a whole lot more reason to suspect that atheism is a psychological crutch than that religion is one. But if there are no absolutes, next slide, if everyone believes that there are no absolutes, then the state becomes the final arbiter of what can be said and done. And I use arbiter deliberately because the state will be arbitrary. That's kind of where we are. If there's no ground to stand on, if there's nothing we can point to that's true, then the state gets to decide what we can do and what we can say. Next slide. And if the state gets to decide what we can do and what we can say, then politics becomes the most important battleground. In this worldview, hang on, next slide. Politics and government will be viewed as the cause of all our problems and the source of all the solutions to our problems. It constantly amuses me and amazes me and distresses me that the people who want to um, defund institutions and tear down the culture and the society and attack um, symbolic things like statues, also think that the government ought to step in and do those things. The government that they think is hopelessly corrupt and systemically wicked, they think is also the thing that can solve all of these problems for us. And so we wind up with the paradoxical, nonsensical position. If you start with there are no absolutes, politics becomes the most important battleground, then politics and government are viewed as the cause of all our problems. It's not me, it's not you, it's the systemic system. And then the solution to our problems is we have to tear this system down and put up one that's better, more just. So the fix is also a system, just a different system. But politics is where the whole thing is going to be played out. Next slide. But they're not. And, and people sometimes blame Schaefer for the church becoming involved in politics. I think that's an unfair charge. I've actually seen a couple of um, doctoral theses that were published in the last two or three years, and this is a sign that Schaefer is still to be reckoned with. 
in the 21st century, people are starting to do doctoral research on Francis Schaeffer and his influence in the church and in politics and in culture. And so um, they may not like him, but they're having to concede that he's had a huge impact. Next slide. Politics and government are not the source of all our problems. And here I'm, I'm trying to draw us back into the core of what Schaefer proclaimed. Politics and government are not the source of all our problems. Next slide. Sin is. That's the source. What's wrong with the world? The London Times published that once as an editorial. What's wrong with the world? G.K. Chesterton sent them a letter to the editor the following day. It was it consisted of two words. You asked in your editorial what's wrong with the world? I am. I'm what's wrong with the world. And you and all of us are what's wrong with the world. Next slide. Politics and government are not the solution to our problems. If sin is the problem, then politics and government are not the solution. And again, it's unfair to charge Schaefer with somehow having co-opted Christians and getting involved politically. He didn't. His message, and it's the following slide that proclaims it, the solution to all our problems is Jesus. And that is the central message of the Bible. That's the central message of the New Testament. It's the central message of Schaefer's How Should We Then Live? The source of all our problems, societal, personal, cultural, political, whatever dimension you want to look in, is sin. And the solution to all our problems is Jesus, who forgives us and cleanses us and bestows upon us his righteousness so that we can enter into the presence of the Father and begins to transform us and sanctify us so that we can live lives of service and obedience to him in gratitude. It is by grace through faith that you are saved and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Can't fix our problems at the ballot box because our problems didn't start there. And I'm an intensely passionate follower of politics and occasionally dabble, um, as most of my friends can tell you. But I have to keep reminding myself, and in fact, you know, as uh, many, many preachers have pointed out, and I, the, the times I get to preach, I discovered uh, anew every time. Everybody who's preaching is really preaching to themselves. I'm preaching this sermon because this is what I need to hear. I'm preaching this sermon, I think, because God needed to remind me, and maybe you guys as well, you get to listen in on this conversation. Politics is not the answer. Um, Andrew Breitbart, one of my um, heroes of the last generation, observed that politics is downstream from culture. What we're seeing right now in politics is the result of cultural changes from 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago. We're getting the politics we are getting right now because the culture changed a long time ago. So if politics is downstream from culture, 
then you can't fix the culture by changing the politics. You can't fix the politics by just electing somebody different because the culture is still what's generating the conflict, the turmoil, the pushback, the chaos, the anarchy. The problem is sin, and the answer is Jesus. Next slide. So what does the Bible have to say to us about living in these times, these crazy, turbulent times? I I would contend it, it is not a call to us to take up and make our lives a part of a political crusade. Yes, I think we should be responsible citizens. Yes, I think we have the privilege of voting in this country, and we should. And engaging in political discourse calmly, quietly, kindly is a good thing, often. And often it's an opportunity to evangelize, to proclaim the gospel, to point out that government is limited because government can't fix the problems. The problems are in the human heart, and only the gospel has an answer to those problems in the human heart. So how do we live our lives in a turbulent time, in a turbulent age where Christianity is under attack? Micah 6, 8, he has told you, a mortal, what is good? And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. That's more important than any political cause or crusade. Is it in our personal lives, in our relationships with those around us, in our interactions with coworkers and acquaintances and strangers that we do justice and love kindness and walk humbly with God? Next slide. It's a truism, but again... I put these verses up because I think God needed to remind me. Paul, writing to Timothy, 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 2. Some of you know this. It's worth memorizing. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. What's the most we can hope for from government? Not that they're going to make everybody Christian. Not that they're going to evangelize. Not that they're going to expand the kingdom of God. It's not the function. It's not the role. We hope that government will enable us to lead peaceful and quiet lives, godly and dignified. That's what we expect from government. Next slide. Peter chimes in and echoes Paul. Conduct yourselves with such honor among the Gentiles that though they slander you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. So how do we live our lives in the 21st century? Conduct ourselves with honor. Though they slander you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds. Well, if you're not doing any good deeds, nobody's going to see them, right? You've got to be doing something for them to be seen. Next slide. Other times, other places. In the history of our country, a Christian consensus has been dominant for the first couple of centuries. We're coming up on 250 years. For about the first 200 of those, there was a Christian consensus. 
the majority of the population went to church. But that's actually the exception rather than the rule in the history of the church. It's the exception rather than the rule in the history of Western civilization. In the Roman world from 30 AD to 300 AD, it was dangerous to be a Christian. It was illegal to be a Christian. It could get you arrested if you were known to be a Christian. Christians were denounced as haters of mankind. They were martyred. They were put to death. They weren't trying to elect a slightly better emperor. That wasn't the mission of the church. Can we get a slightly less corrupt emperor? Is there a better choice than Nero? Could we pick somebody? That wasn't the mission. The mission was to live godly lives, to do good deeds, treat others with kindness, to do justice, to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ and his provision for sin. And over the course of 300 years, the church changed the Roman world. In 300 AD, one of the emperors publicly converted to Christianity, and the world changed for about a century. Next slide. And then, of course, oh, well, I should have had you here first. One more. Yeah. And then, just as Christianity became the dominant um, religion in the old Roman world, the Roman world came crashing down, and they were conquered by a bunch of pagan barbarians. And Christians went back to being persecuted. And they were. First the pagan Germanic tribes, then the pagan Vikings, not to mention the Huns, and um, and then the uh, the Arab armies, uh, and Islam swept over the old Roman provinces, and Christians basically went back to living a life as a persecuted minority. And you know what they did? They did exactly the same thing they had done for the first 300 years. They converted their oppressors. They converted those who were persecuting them. They converted the barbarian tribes. In fact, the conversion of the barbarians is one of the great stories of the church. Um, I can do a whole hour sermon on that, but I won't. Um, it's a great book with that title, The Conversion of the Barbarians. These Germanic barbarian tribes were converted to Christianity not by force of arms, not by compulsion, but by the example of missionaries who went and lived among them and preached the gospel and were often killed for their pains. Um, Another great book to uh, to read if you get interested in that topic is uh, Tom Cahill's How the Irish Saved Civilization. The Irish were about the last people the gospel reached in the old Roman world. Just as the Roman world was collapsing, Patrick, who's a Roman, not Irish, who's a Roman, gets kidnapped, escapes, then gets a call from God to go back to the people who had kidnapped him and preached the gospel. And the Irish adopted Christianity and embraced it and then began sending out missionaries back to the pagan barbarians in Europe. There are Irish monasteries all through Germany and Switzerland and even northern Italy where they helped convert the barbarians. Next slide. The medieval world. Cathedrals and castles. Yeah. Um, and a world lit only by fire. When the sun went down, it got dark and grim. The powerful oppressed the weak, the rich exploited the poor, the church was led often by corrupt men. And yet, Christianity persisted because people lived lives of service to God. 
They did justice as they could. They were kind to those that they knew and those around them, and their example spoke eloquently. Next slide. I could do a whole lot more. The church, through all these ages, through all these turbulent times, has made itself known by acts of mercy and kindness and the proclamation of the good news of Jesus Christ. Salvation by grace through faith. I got more. <laughs> lest you, lest you wonder whether those are ancient and bygone times and no longer a pickle for us. Next slide. Yeah, there were religious civil wars in Europe from 1550 to 1700. In France, in Germany, in England. There were Christians who were trying to witness and proclaim the kingdom of God and the good news of Jesus Christ, and they were put to death for their troubles. They didn't transform the world by forming political parties. Next slide. Early modern times. I'm betraying my own prejudices here. I kind of lose interest after 1700. It's all downhill from the French Revolution. Every Actually, after 1700, it's just current events. It's not really even history. America doesn't have history yet, might someday, but it's still sort of all current events. The French Revolution, the riots and revolutions that overthrew governments and often targeted Christians from 1789 to 1900. But do you know what was going on in that century, century and a quarter? The greatest missionary movement in the history of the church was proclaiming the gospel around the world. Not by force of arms, not by political parties, not by organizing voters for elections, but by going and preaching and proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ in Asia, in Africa, in the jungles in South America, in Japan, all of those countries that had been closed and the gospel had not really penetrated to, they were all reached in this period of time when the West was beginning to turn its back on Christianity. One more slide. In the bloody 20th century, when tyrants and dictators waged bloody wars of aggression and murdered on a mass scale. The 20th century is the bloodiest history in the history of mankind, bloodiest century in the history of mankind. It was far worse. You were far more likely to be killed in the 20th century than in any other age of human civilization. And the thing that killed you was your government. For those of you who think government is the problem, yeah, there's a good example there, but those of you who think government is the solution, there's a good counterexample there. Most people killed in the 20th century were killed by governments, and Christians were martyred. Christians were martyred by fascist tyranny. Christians were martyred in communist tyranny. Next slide. The church made itself known. The true church, the believers, the followers of Jesus made themselves known by acts of mercy and kindness and the proclamation of the good news of Jesus Christ. Salvation by grace through faith. Next slide. So in the 21st century, how should we live? Next slide. The church should make itself known by acts of mercy and kindness. And the proclamation of the good news of Jesus Christ, salvation by grace through faith. That is the only solution to the human dilemma. That is the only solution to the cultural problems. That is the only solution to hate, 
to racism, to oppression and exploitation, because we are all sinful. We are all sinners. The problems that we experience are because of Adam's fall and our own sinful nature, which needs to be transformed. And that is the good news of the gospel. And lest anybody charge that Schaefer overlooked it or focused on politics, I would invite you to read his books and you will see that it is not true. This is the core of Schaefer's writing. It is the core of the biblical message in the Old and the New Testament. You put up that last slide. I should go ahead and flip. Let's put all three up there. If I had three verses that I wanted to impress upon you today, it's these three. What does the Lord require? That you do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with your God. Prayers and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Conduct yourselves with such honor among the Gentiles that though they slander you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. It's a challenge that I feel in my own life to focus on the right things, to get my priorities in order, to recognize that what the real problem is and what the real solution is, and that politics, which is kind of just a sport for adults, um, and, and they do keep score. It is. It's the only real sport. The only true sport for adults is politics. But that makes it both less and more meaningful um, than it deserves. And I'm not saying don't be political. I'm not saying don't withdraw from politics, don't pay attention, don't do anything. But I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that is not where we put our hope. That is not where we put our attention. That is not where we make our proclamation. That is not the solution to our problems. Our problem is sin. And the solution, the good news of the gospel, not that we have a better set of rules, because we don't. We have the same set of rules that God has written on the human heart universally. And we can't keep them. But we have the good news, the answer to sin. That through the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, there is forgiveness. There is reconciliation with God. There is his righteousness by which we can enter into the presence of God, by which we can, in fact, set aside our prejudices and our our mean-spiritedness and our acts of unkindness, and we can do good to those around us. We can enact justice. We can be part of God's kingdom and God's establishment and expansion of his kingdom through the power that Christ that God implants in us by his Holy Spirit. So that's my message today. I pray that uh, that God will use this. He's, it's already been used to sort of bring me up short in this day and this season. And as we think about our country and our times and the world, I pray it will be of some use to you. Let me close this in prayer. Father, thank you that you did not leave us in our sin that at just the right time you sent your son Jesus to reveal yourself to us, to teach, to preach, to heal, to do signs and wonders, to spend his life for us on the cross. 
We thank you that you raised him up again on the third day and he ascended into heaven and he sits at your right hand that he shall come again to judge and to rule. That he sends his Holy Spirit to work in our hearts, to transform us, to draw us back to you. And that through him you offer us forgiveness. You offer us what we could never achieve on our own. You give us the ability to call you Abba Father. Stir us up, Father. Show us the ways in which we can be kind, the ways in which we can act justly, the ways in which we need to walk more humbly. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You're dismissed.